listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 34. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, or you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Pastor Nathan. Uh, I'm the pastor of student ministries and young adult ministry here at Faith. I just thought I'd introduce myself just in case some of you haven't had the chance to meet me or I haven't had the chance to meet some of you. It's been a while since I've been up here. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to share with you uh, from God's word this morning. Uh, Now, it was one week and about nine hours ago uh, that I found myself laying on my back in a patch of grass next to a gas station in the middle of Kentucky. Uh, And it was a moment where I I don't think I've ever been in that moment before. Uh, The context here is that my wife, Claire, and I, and our three kids had driven down to Gulf Shores for a family vacation, and we were on our way back. Uh, The drive down had gone really smoothly, had enjoyed our time at the beach, and we're like, hey, why don't we um, leave in the afternoon so we don't have, like, all day in the car, you know, 13, 14 hours in the car with the kids. We'll let them be awake for a little bit, then we'll feed them dinner, they'll go to sleep, and then we'll just drive through the night in peace. Um, And that did not happen. Uh, After about a 30-minute nap, uh, our second uh, oldest, Addie, was just tired of being in her car seat and uh, just would not fall asleep. She was overtired and just cranky, and then her crying woke up other people in the car, and it was a pretty chaotic situation. Uh, So there I was, we stopped for gas, and I was trying to just get her to calm down, and so I'm laying on my back in the grass, I'm like, how did I get here? (laughs) What is going on? And yet, we were still two and a half hours away from Indianapolis, and there really wasn't anything to do except just keep driving. Uh, But I can remember kind of crying out to God in that moment as we get back in the car, our kids are screaming again, and we see no end in sight. Uh, Like, God, please just enter this mess. Like, this is a mess, I don't know how we got here, but please just enter this mess. And, and he did. Was it magically immediate? No, of course not. But eventually, uh, we survived. We got home, and we're standing here before you. Though I do think we felt the effects of that for days, and probably still now. Um, so yes, we, we cried out in that moment. I cried out in that moment. God, just enter this mess. And I think 
for many of us, we find ourselves in times of chaos, right? Maybe some moments of your own doing or some that you have no idea how you got there. Um, you know, maybe your car breaks down and you're not sure how you're going to pay to fix it. A an investment doesn't pan out. Uh, a health crisis happens within your family or your spouse loses their job. Uh, but it can also happen on large scale too, right? Tornadoes, floods, wildfires, hurricanes, the list goes on. Uh, and in the midst of all this chaos, it can sometimes be hard to see or feel order. If there's any sort of order or plan in what's going on. Things seem out of line, out of place, and out of control. But actually, even in these moments, God is drawing near to us. So in the midst of, of chaos, and as we'll see with the demon-possessed men as well, in the midst of evil, your God draws near to you. In the midst of chaos and evil, your God draws near to you, and so you can trust the Lord to save. So as we've been in this series, The God Who Draws Near, uh, I hope you're able to see how this is kind of a series that bridges what we were studying all summer in the Sermon on the Mount in our foundation series and what we'll be beginning in a few weeks as we, uh, study, or as we go through our Advent series looking at the coming of Jesus. And so here we are kind of in this middle looking more and more at Jesus in his ministry, how he draws near to us. We want to remind ourselves of these qualities of the Lord. And so, if you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. And, and as we get there, let's remind ourselves of the actual context of Matthew, of Matthew chapter 8. Um, he healed the leper. He heals the centurion's servant. He also heals Peter's mother-in-law. Um, and Matthew, in the verses leading up to our passage this morning... Uh, as we get to this passage, he says that he has been healing many, he's casting out demons with a word, and yet Jesus is clear to communicate to those watching that there is a cost to following him. There's a cost to following him. In verse 20, as they're about to get in this boat to go across the Sea of Galilee, a scribe comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus responds, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, that's the immediate contest, and that brings us to the moment that Jesus and his disciples get into the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And ironically, Jesus does find a place to lay his head, but it's in a boat. So, in, in this moment of chaos that the disciples find themselves in, right, where the storm is raging and they're about to drown, um, I can imagine, as we all often do when we get into these moments, you kind of ask yourself, like, how did we get here, right? Like, I definitely asked myself that a week ago when we were in the car. Like, how did we get here? Why did we think this was a good idea? Uh, and so maybe you can relate to that. But for the disciples' sake, let's, let's see how they got there. How did they get to this moment of chaos where they're crying out to Jesus to save them? So verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. That's Jesus. So even to this day, there are storms and squalls that will stir up seemingly out of nowhere on the Sea of Galilee. And for a sea or lake that has this size, there's much bigger lakes with far lesser storms than the Sea of Galilee. But because of the geography, this is just kind of what happens. But these are experienced fishermen, right? It's probably in one of their boats, and they've been on the Sea of Galilee their whole life. So they're not surprised that there might be a storm, and they might even... Well, as we'll see, maybe even try and take care of it a little bit themselves. So the storm rises up, but where's Jesus? He, being exhausted from, in, of being exhausted from ministry, 
has fallen asleep in a boat despite the storm swirling around him, right? Even with the storm going on, screaming in a car, whatever, he found a way to fall asleep. But the waves have begun to swamp the boat. So here the disciples are. They maybe don't initially want to trouble their teacher, right? Like, they're experienced fishermen. Like, we, we got this. We've done this before. And so they don't initially wake Jesus. The storm is raging. The storm is coming up. The wind and the waves are throwing them around, and they're probably trying to handle it themselves to some point. Um, but in verse 25, we see they eventually get to this moment of exhaustion. They get to this moment where they realize they cannot save themselves, and they cry out to Jesus, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And, and I can kind of relate to the disciples in, in terms of they don't want to initially wake the person who can save them, right? Like, you know, with three kids, many of you can probably relate, especially at the age that our kids are. Um, there's a lot of sleepless nights or a lot of waking in the night. And so, you know, maybe if, if Claire's sleeping and I wake up, I hear one of our kids, I might try and go help them get back to sleep. Like, oh, I don't, I don't want to wake Claire. She's been, she's been, you know, wrangling the kids all day. I'm going to try and just get them back to sleep so she can keep resting. Uh, but then, you know, the second kid wakes up or the third kid wakes up, and then pretty soon it's, uh, save us, we're perishing, right? And so, yeah, this is kind of where the disciples get to. They're like, all right, we've tried our own. We cannot save ourselves. Save us, we are perishing. Uh, but look at Jesus and how he responds. He does not have a rebuke for the disciples. He does have a rebuke, but it's for the winds and the waves. He rose up and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for their cries to him, right? He does not rebuke them. He doesn't ask, now, why did you wake me up? I was peacefully resting after a hard day. Uh, or, or, what do you want me to do about it? So there's a storm. What do you expect me to do? No, he actually just says, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? And it doesn't really seem to be a rhetorical question, meaning he already knows the answer. But really, he's asking, are you, are you really afraid? Even with me here with you, you are afraid? As one commentator describes this interaction, Jesus does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. He's more concerned about what their fear has done to them than maybe their lack of faith in Jesus to save. Um, but these disciples, they've already left behind their jobs, their families, and their livelihood to follow Jesus. They've listened to him teach with authority, an authority that they did not even perceive the scribes to have. They watched him heal many, even some from a distance. And they have faith that Jesus will save, him, save them, or why would they cry out to him? And they believe that Jesus can save them even though they don't really know how he's going to do it. And it's at this moment of chaos, the Lord Jesus rises from his place of rest and speaks a word to rebuke the wind and the sea. Jesus leaves no doubt that all of creation is under his domain, all of it. Wild animals can be tamed a gardener can cultivate a plant to produce fruit, but how can anyone tame the chaos of wind or the waves, especially ones from a deathly storm? But Jesus does so with a word from his mouth. 
Now, we might want to ask the question, would the storm have arisen if Jesus wasn't asleep? Uh, Were the disciples in danger because Jesus was asleep at the wheel? Uh, And could a storm of creation really snuff out the creator? Uh, There's nothing really wrong with wondering these or asking these questions, but ultimately what we're asking is, is God always in control, even if Jesus is sleeping in a boat? And the short answer is yes. The Father is always in control. And in fact, Jesus could rest and sleep in this boat because he trusted the Father's plan. God, in the person of Jesus, came to earth in part because he wanted men and women to know him and know what he is like. To his disciples, Jesus reveals himself little by little. They have faith. They call him Lord. Yet, at this point, their faith is a little meager. Their faith grows a lot by the time that Jesus, or by the time that Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. The storm did not arise because Jesus was asleep. But this storm on the sea was raging as part of the Father's plan for the disciples and for us to see more of who Jesus is, even in the glimpse, or even in the chaos. And if you can remember or think about miracles for a second, miracles reveal God's redemptive purposes, and they authenticate his servants. So the Father, through Jesus, is authenticating Jesus' authority through this. So in this chaos, chaos of the storm, disciples not knowing what's going to happen, God was drawing near. But how do the disciples respond? Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. All is calm. How do they respond? Verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? The disciples' reaction to Jesus calming the storm is similar to that if they were watching a magician, right? That um, they expect him to do something amazing, yet when he actually does it, they're still amazed, right? Like they're like, okay, save us. And they, they ask him to save us, and yet when he calms the storm, they're, whoa, whoa, we were not expecting that. Which makes me wonder, like, what were they expecting Jesus to do? Were they expecting him to be really good at, you know, bailing water out with a bucket? I don't know. But the disciples stand amazed. They, they cried out to Jesus to save. Um, and yet, for them, their paradigm of belief, of who they saw Jesus to be, somehow it did not include this aspect of Jesus having control over the winds and the waves. Because if they expected him to do what he did, they probably wouldn't have been as surprised. But Jesus saves them. So for a moment, let's just pause and think about this. What about you? What about me? When, when you cry out to Jesus in the midst of chaos, how are you hoping he will respond? Think about a moment of chaos. When you cry out to him, how are you hoping he will respond? And do you see Jesus as one who draws near in the chaos? Do you believe he is the Lord and has the power to bring peace and calm when you cry out to him? Well, we'll come back to these questions a little bit later. But for now, let's keep going and see how Jesus also shows that he is the ruler of chaos uh, and over evil uh, with these uh, two demon-possessed men that he comes in contact with. So, um, verse 28 and 30, we get a little bit of context. So they get to the other side of the lake. They get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they come face-to-face with two demon-possessed men. And verse 30 says there's also a herd of pigs nearby um, even though it's some distance away. So Jesus and the disciples get, get to the other side, and 
probably a Gentile village, right, because of the presence of pigs, an unclean animal, likely a Gentile village. Um, but we once again see Jesus about to do something miraculous. Here in Matthew, we don't get many details about the, the, the demon-possessed men. Uh, in the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, there's a little bit more detail about their lives. Um, you know, it says that, you know, no ropes or chains could bind them, how dangerous they were to others and to themselves. No one dared to go near them. So no physical or social boundary could restrain these men. Um, but once again, just like we've seen him do time and time again, Jesus draws near to the socially isolated and to the outcast. Even in the face of evil and potential harm to himself, Jesus is drawing near. And for Matthew, he has this focus, different from Mark and Luke. He has this unique perspective where he is trying to show the authority of Jesus. That's why maybe he doesn't include all these details about the demon-possessed man, because he, has, he wants his readers to see that Jesus has the authority over not just creation, but also the supernatural. So the demons make a request, though. They, they, they cry out to Jesus. Verses 29 and 31, we see what the demons say. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. I find it a little interesting that um, the demon-possessed men come out to meet Jesus, but then immediately say, what are you going to do with us? Or what do you have to do with us? It's almost like coming out, you know, or going up to a house at, during trick-or-treating, and then when they answer the door, you say, leave me alone. It's like a little odd that they come out to meet Jesus, but then immediately want nothing to do with him. Uh, but uh, in any case, these demoniacs uh, are social outcasts, and they're in a pretty poor state of things. Uh, these demons yell out to Jesus. They want to know his intentions. Where Jesus is all-knowing, these demons do not. They don't know what's about to happen. Um, and they even use his title, perhaps mockingly, uh, but they call him the Son of God. That's his title. That's who he is. Uh, and it's also kind of interesting, thinking back to what the disciples said, the disciples wondered, what sort of man is this that could harness the wind and the waves? But the demons know exactly who Jesus is. So what's the difference between a disciple and a demon? It's not knowledge, because the demons had that. But the difference is loving obedience. The demons had the knowledge of who Jesus was, yet it was the disciples who acted in loving obedience to Jesus. Even though their faith was meager, even though they didn't fully understand everything about who Jesus was at the time, they were willing to follow him. And for these demons, it's clear that they're also aware of their ultimate demise. They know they're ultimately going to be destroyed, right? When they say, that, you know, the appointed time, have you come to destroy us before the time? They know that time is coming, but they also know that that time is not yet here. So like, Jesus, what you doing? You're not here to destroy us yet. So it appears to dawn on them that Jesus is going to do something, that he's not going to allow them to stay possessing these men. And so realizing their fate, they ask Jesus to send them into the herd of pigs. So what does Jesus do? With a single word, and I, and I love how Pastor Joey read this passage and just paused for a moment, dramatic pause, and just said, go. One word, Jesus drives out the demons. Simultaneously driving out the demons from the lives of the demoniacs and also granting a strange request from the demons. 
Now, did Jesus have to grant their request? Of course not. He didn't have to do that. He had the power and authority over them. He did not have to grant their request. But, once again, we should pay attention to the actions and decisions of Jesus because by seeing these actions, we, along with the disciples, are seeing more and more of who Jesus is and what he is about. And that Jesus shows he has the ultimate authority over all creation, including spiritual forces of evil. So what happens? Uh, The demons go into the pigs, and the pigs go down the cliff, into the water, and drown. Now, a lot of questions can be asked about this herd of pigs. A little bit of an odd situation. Um, Why do the demons want to enter the pigs? Do the demons know what they're doing? Do the demons have to inhabit a body of some sort at all times? Why would Jesus grant the demons their request? Did Jesus know what would happen next? Uh, When the pigs drown, are the demons destroyed too? Did Jesus not care about the pigs or the financial loss to the owners? Right? There's lots of these questions, and we're not going to sit here and answer all these questions about the pigs one by one. But let's take just a minute and and talk about this. Um, Ultimately, we don't really know a whole lot about demons and how they operate. Uh, In Scripture, really, demon possession is only mentioned once in the Old Testament. And outside of the Gospels, it's only mentioned once in Acts. And even in all of Scripture, most of the interactions with demon-possessed people are the demons being driven out. So we don't really know a whole lot of how they work. We don't know why they requested to be sent into the herd of pigs. Uh, But here's what we do know. Demons are always hostile toward God. Always hostile toward God, toward his creation and his image bearers, which are us, humans. They have no power over Jesus, but they're enacting their power and will over these two men. They have destroyed them physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. Thus, when it becomes apparent that these demons can no longer possess these men and destroy them, they instead decide to destroy the herd of pigs instead. See, for the demons, their hatred of their creator extends even to the hatred and destruction of his creation. So if you're getting hung up on why Jesus let them go into the pigs to destroy them, you're not the first to ask this question, right? Like, why did Jesus let them do this? He didn't have to. They did not care about the pigs or the financial loss. And the short answer is yes, Jesus did care. But his care for the pigs and the financial loss to the owners paled in comparison to his care for the two men who had been overpowered by these demons. Jesus puts spiritual and human realities over and above All other considerations. By driving out the demons, he brings freedom and restoration to these men and safety to the town. And even though he was a Jew and these men were likely Gentiles, he was still willing to enter the fray to drive out evil. So, what happens after this? Verses 33 and 34. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The herdsmen, watching over the pigs, some distance away from Jesus, probably not perfectly understanding what was going on, um, they run back into the town and explain everything, including what happened to the men. You know, so imagine you're just sitting in your house in this village, and someone runs in, and your response is like, so you're telling me a strange man with a bunch of followers, comes out of this storm on the sea. Uh, They are confronted by these demon-possessed men that have been tormenting our town for years. 
Uh, he drives out the demons, and now all of a sudden the pigs are running down the cliff, and they all drowned. This I got to see. Jimmy, you bet? let's go. And Jimmy's probably like, I see that every Tuesday. Right? So in any case, the whole town is rushing out to see what has happened, to see Jesus. They come to see the disciples. And in Mark's account, Mark actually says that the demon-possessed men are sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in their right mind. And they actually want to follow Jesus, but Jesus says, no, you stay here and tell everyone about what the Lord has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. But all Matthew includes is that the people of the region come out to see him and then promptly beg him to leave. Instead of marveling at the miracle that Jesus performed in driving out demons, the town, for one reason or another, is afraid and asks Jesus to leave. So, in these two stories, the, the, it's one story but two kind of parts, the storm and these demons, we see two aspects of how God draws near to us and two situations where people are trying to figure out who this Jesus is. So God draws near to us in the midst of chaos and he draws near to us by conquering evil. But all sorts of people in these stories are trying to figure out who is this Jesus, who is this man. For the disciples up to this point, Jesus being able to rule the laws of nature and creation didn't fit their paradigm, didn't make sense to them. The demons, they knew who Jesus was, but they did not seek mercy or repentance and were content to simply leave Jesus' presence and destroy his creation on their way out the door. The demon-possessed men knew there was something special about Jesus, and even though they didn't know everything, they didn't know everything about who Jesus was or what he came to do, they were willing to follow him. And for the people of the town, they came out to see Jesus but begged him to leave because, in a sense, they preferred pigs to people. Even the gift of these two men restored to their town was not worth the loss of the pigs. Or it wasn't worth the fear of the unknown of who Jesus is. I mean, if he has the power to drive out demons, what else is he capable of? Right? So... As you hear these stories of Jesus, how, how do these stories sit with you? Are you perplexed by Jesus? Comforted by his presence? Are you intimidated by his power? Are you confused by his plans and timing? Maybe you're just begging him to leave you alone. Well, as we think about these stories, I think there's a few ways that we can start to apply this and think about how this sits with us. And the first is to simply answer the question that the disciples asked. Who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus, to you? Does your picture of who Jesus is, does it look like one who can command the wind and the waves and all of creation? Is your picture of Jesus one where he can drive out and conquer evil? Do you see Jesus as one who draws nearer to you in these times of chaos? Or is he one that you see as one who flees? when you're in chaos? Do you see Jesus as one who enters the fray to heal, to restore, and bring life? Do you see Jesus as not just the one who came to save you from your sins, but he is also the Lord of your life, meaning he has the authority to command you how to live your life? So first, just answer that question. Who is this man? Second, know that even in times of chaos, God draws near to you, and you can trust him to save. 
When your retirement account crashes with the stock market, don't buy a Powerball ticket, but turn to the Lord. Your investments will probably not magically reappear, but God will draw near to you and show you what it means that he will give you your daily bread. When your health fails, there doesn't seem to be much hope from doctors. Don't despair because God is drawing near to you even in deathly illness. He may not heal you in the way or the timing that you would like him to, but he will draw near and bring a sense of peace and calm despite the unknown future. When your hopes and dreams for having a family are upended and it feels like no good God would allow such hardship to befall one of his children, yes, cry out to him. Cry out to him because he listens. He hears your sorrows, and as he draws near in the chaos of lost dreams, he reminds us of the sorrows that he himself bore on our behalf. In all likelihood, when in the midst of chaos and we cry out to him, we probably won't experience an instant end to chaos uh, that the disciples did with this storm or that these demon-possessed men experienced when the demons were driven out of them. But we will experience the presence of God in a profound way that we probably weren't expecting. So in those moments of chaos, trust the Lord to save Ask yourself, what aspect of God is he trying to communicate or show me as part of being in this chaos? Is he trying to show me more of his love, his peace, his authority, his perfect plans and timing, his patience, his grace? Trust the Lord to save. Third, I think we can take comfort knowing that evil is not the ultimate ruler of the earth or our lives. It may seem at times that evil is closing in around us, whether through division, racial tensions, wars, death around the world, hatred and destruction in our own city. The list goes on. But evil does not rule the world. There's only one ruler of creation, and his name is Jesus. And it might not always look the same either. Sometimes the evil we face is actually just a result of our own sin. Sin brings destruction and pain, and we far too often will flirt with the edge of a cliff because of something it might offer us. But no matter what evil you face, no matter what form it takes, we know that there is one ruler over all creation. And because of his sacrificial death on the cross, sin and death have been defeated. And evil will eventually meet its eventual and eternal destruction when Jesus comes again in glory. And last, I think there's an invitation. As God draws near to us, there's an invitation for us to draw near to the weak and the downtrodden. We experience God's presence in the chaos, and we can then be a presence of love and peace in the lives of others when they are in the midst of their own chaotic season. As we experience God's power over evil, and through his spirit we put to death sin in our life, we look around us and help others to Jesus so that they too may experience his power to save and to restore. Jesus was exhausted. He was tired. He fell asleep in a boat. The storm rose up, but the storm couldn't drown him. The Father had a plan. The disciples tried to save themselves, but they realized they couldn't. They cried out to him, Lord, save us. 
No one but the creator controls the winds and the waves, and the waves obeyed him. The disciples, they didn't understand him. The demons, they feared him. They destroyed his creation to spite him. The two men restored wanted to follow him, but the town didn't want him. This man, this Jesus, this son of God, he rebukes the storm. He drives out demons with a single word. Who is he to you? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Let's pray. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to see this story of Jesus exercising his authority over creation, over spiritual forces of evil, and that we know he has the authority to exercise his power in our life. Thank you for the freedom we have from evil, the freedom we have from our own sin because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that, Father, I pray that as we consider who this man is, who is this Jesus, that we would question what we believe to be true about Jesus, that we would align what we believe with what your word says is true, because we know that Jesus was not just a man, but he was a son of God, perfect and blameless, died in our place so that we can spend an eternity with you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.